0: I'm Chloe Zelka, and I'm a rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College, uh, formerly a chaplain resident at UCSF Mission Bay Hospital. The story coming to mind is of a middle-aged woman um, with a terminal cancer diagnosis who was originally pretty skeptical of seeing the chaplain and um, distrustful of the frame of chaplain as a minister. and. In our time together, she surfaced a lot of anxiety about dying. And we talked going in and out of different questions. What exactly was she afraid of? What, what are the shades of that anxiety? And what does it feel like? And when does it feel like too much? At some point I asked if she had a person that she might bring to mind who she felt completely loved by or a, an uncomplicated love. And she closed her eyes, and I asked her to bring that person to mind and really and look in their eyes. And turned out it was her grandmother, who she, she felt like was one of the only people who ever really got her. And together, we kind of experimented with talking to her grandmother um, out loud. And it felt kind of silly at first. She was like, out loud? You know, this feels ridiculous. But as we went, through, it really opened up something that often for some religious people, the resource of God might do, talking to God or praying to God. It did a similar thing without any requisite belief where she was able to feel that love shining on her The felt sense of that, the embodied experience of actually feeling a perfect grandmother's love was a huge resource for her in moving through anxiety about death. And when she opened her eyes, I was looking right at her, you know, trying as best chaplains try to do to offer some sort of unconditional positive regard and some sort of uh, warm just accompaniment journeying alongside her. And uh, she opened her eyes, and she said, just looking into your eyes, just that phrase, just looking into your eyes, and she teared up. And it was one of the times that I felt like that ministry of presence that often chaplains can provide in people's moments of spiritual crisis or moments of pain is a powerful and tangible resource with material consequence for patients to get to feel loved in that way.
1: From the Providence Institute for Human Caring, this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. On today's program, the spiritual care of the whole person. Across the globe, families are gathering to celebrate Passover and Holy Week and soon Ramadan, Each in their own way, these religious communities tell stories of trial and redemption, of freedom from slavery, of suffering and hope, and new life. For anyone facing serious illness, these same archetypal themes are lived daily, as patients face anxiety about the unknown, and a loss of control as they experience anger and frustration and isolation. Our guests today have missions of accompaniment as they journey with the sick and suffering as chaplains. Coming up, the place of spiritual well-being in health Stay with us. Imam Yusuf Hassan is the first board-certified Muslim chaplain in the Association of Professional Chaplains. He works at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center, where he specializes in pediatric and multi-faith spiritual care. And he joins us now from Manhattan. Imam Yusef welcome. So glad to have you here.
2: Well, thank you. And um, I appreciate that nice, wonderful introduction.
1: Chloe Zelka is back with us. A rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, she co-founded the COVID Grief Network, which supports young adults who've lost someone to COVID-19. Chloe's on the line with us from Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm so glad you could be part of this conversation.
0: Thanks so much for including me.
1: And with us from Torrance, California, is the Reverend Danielle Pruitt Cummings, a palliative care chaplain at the Little Company of Mary Medical Center. Danielle is ordained in the Federation of Christian Ministries. Danielle, welcome.
3: Thanks so much, Sean.
1: So I wanna ask the three of you, how do you describe what you do for a living? What do you say that you do? Danielle, let me begin with you there in Southern California.
3: As a interfaith hospital chaplain, I feel that it's my privilege and calling to Enter into the spiritual and emotional landscape that a patient is in. And I seek to alleviate their suffering through a ministry of presence and helping them find access to their pre existing spiritual resources.
1: Chloe, how do you answer the question?
3: In my
0: work now with the COVID Grief Network, I say that I mobilize chaplains and therapists and social workers and all sorts of folks that know how to show up for grief to offer free care to young adults who are experiencing grief in this moment. And I think the work of chaplaincy to me is about accompanying and journeying alongside folks who are in moments of suffering or in big transition moments in their lives and to enter into the meaning-making universe, the universe of meaning-making of each person without trying to fix, correct, advise, or somehow get in the way of, of the processes already underway.
1: There is a lot tucked into what you just said, and I'm, we're going to come back to a lot of it. But I want to turn to New York now. And Yusef, how do you describe what you do?
2: Well, um... What I do is uh, provide a presence and a listening presence. And I also help patients and family members find that which is within themselves to express mm-hmm. about what they're experiencing with illness and death and dying. And it's just like we are the doctors of the spirit. We also provide a special place for people to come and share their their feelings and their hurt and their pain and their sorrow and their joys. And I'm one of the cheerleaders.
1: Hmm.
2: I describe myself as a cheerleader for those who are suffering and in pain.
1: This notion of accompaniment, being there, showing up, you all and your colleagues are willing to go someplace where the rest of us tend to flee. Some of us find it very difficult to sit with someone who is grieving or who is anxious or who is worried or who is suffering and you're willing to be there. Where's that strength coming from?
2: Well, for me, I think is seeing myself in that place. And I feel that every one of us, one day or another gonna taste illness. We're gonna experience illness in our lifetime. And I feel it's a part of our existence. So it's not all the time the illness we are fighting, it's also how we deal with it, what we see, and how we help each other in this place of darkness and fear. So as chaplains, we go to places where the angels thread to fear, and the dark places in people's spirit, and try to bring a little light to the subject.
0: For me, um, comes in some part from my personal story, My when I was 25, my partner was hit by car on his bicycle, actually on Rosh Hashanah on the second um, day of the Jewish New Year, and suffered really serious injuries. He had a traumatic brain injury and could, uh, you know, nerve damage on his leg that prevented him from walking and um, was in a coma for some time and was a serious... Uh, probably the first time in my life that I kind of saw that saw so clearly that at any moment we, we could all um, get seriously hurt or ill or die this truth of impermanence. Um, and then three months later, my dad died suddenly of an aortic aneurysm at age 66. And in my grief process and in this kind of like coming of age, spiritual reckoning around death and dying. Um, I, I often felt like people were trying to, to fix me if they were turning towards me. Um, or more often that people were turning away, um, that it's really, it's not pleasant, <laughs> uh, to mm-hmm. be, to be sitting in that kind of, um, pain and disruption with somebody and in some ways it's it surfaces a truth that we're all trying to forget often which is that we our place on this earth is tenuous Um, and so when the dust settled from that wild year of loss and I had taken you know some years to be to be processing I knew that to integrate it into some sort of wisdom I needed and not just turn away or kind of pretend that had never happened. I was going to need to stay connected to the world of death and dying. And what I really wanted to do was offer the kind of presence that I felt like was was thin for me um, to other folks who were going through crisis.
3: That really resonates with me as well, Chloe. I think that when I've gone through seasons of intense suffering or injustice personally, really the only relief or help that I found in the midst of that was not the resolution or the escape of those circumstances, but the connections that I found within them. And... It's kind of like turning into the skid or, um, you know, facing your worst nightmare uh, that's chasing you versus continuing to run. And so the opportunity to be that connection, to hold someone's hand while they face the monster in the room um, is a role of hopefully announcing freedom and hopefully granting some sort of help in the midst of the mess and the chaos and and that which has been avoided all the way until now.
1: (laughs) I remember from my first significant losses when I was in my 20s that what became an important tool for my moving forward was to make meaning out of the loss And that became a sort of key tool for dealing with losses of all sorts going forward. I feel like it was a lesson that I learned through grief that we become the sum total, not only of all of our joys, but of all of our losses as well. And we carry those with us.
3: I think our... Familiarity with sorrow and suffering also deepens our capacity for joy and love and gratitude. And so there's a phrase, a community of sufferers. And I think once we've been initiated into that, we continue
2: building more deeply into it.
1: And I think it can awaken compassion in us, too.
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, Compassion is, is an empathy. Is, is very important, and I've learned a lot of those um, those traits from my grandmother, she would always go and take care of the children and, and and community people, and she would always take me along with her. Her compassion still stands with me to this day. That drives me to be more compassionate and understanding to our patients regardless. Uh, being in the civil rights movement and going through all those suffering and, and the loss in those places, um that will bring me almost full circle where I care for people of all faith traditions. It doesn't matter. I care for people who uh, might not care for me particularly. We are human. Mm-hmm. And we go through the same type of experiences. One way or another, we are going to meet in this crossroad.
1: Yusuf, you've brought up a really interesting point about interfaith ministry. Talk to me a little bit about the training that hospital chaplains receive to allow them to transcend their own personal tradition to reach out to people of all sorts of belief systems or no belief system.
0: Yeah, I can I can start by saying that my first week on the job at UCSF you know as a jewish person i was training in how to do infant baptisms in the catholic tradition as someone who was working on the nicu and and you know internally i had a whole uh reckoning that i think actually is a big part of the training of doing spiritual care is how do you as a person rooted in a faith tradition um which in my mind, being rooted in some sort of meaning making tradition, not necessarily a faith one is key to being um, to being grounded, authentic and to being accountable to something beyond oneself. But h- how do you merge that with also being inclusive enough and able to meet people exactly where they are, which is not always in your faith tradition. And the majority of folks that I was playing chaplain to were not Jews. I think, there, yeah, there was some necessary reckoning that I think the training helped guide me through in terms of how, how to be authentic to both of those places. And mm-hmm. for me personally, it was about each each room being its own spiritual, theological or uh, non-theological universe and, and having the humility to step fully into that and be with people exactly the way they were. So obviously not trying to shift any sort of belief process, that's kind of like the ground floor of that kind of orientation, but also being willing to catch on to someone else's spiritual vocabulary very quickly, affirm it and build on it and, and offer openings for all sorts of meaning making processes, like ritual, like prayer, like questioning, conversation, Uh, religious or not, that build on that sort of existing vocabulary.
1: Right.
2: Uh, Your interpersonal relationships as well. In my faith tradition, we are taught that we must respect all faith traditions and all peoples. Whatever faith tradition a person has is our obligation to support them and be generous to them and treat them as we want to be treated. But in my personal life, I'm a Muslim and my mother, is a Christian. And our aunt is a Jewish person. So how can I not be present for each one of those who are part of my life?
1: Yusuf, I'm reminded of the line from the gospel that in my father's house, there are many mansions. There are a lot of pathways to this meaning making. And it sounds like your family is a perfect example of that.
2: Yes, and we love each other.
1: Passover and Holy Week are coinciding this year, and Ramadan begins just 10 days later. And these are all observances that have profound psychosocial meaning in addition to spiritual meaning uh, for a huge number of your patients. And I'm curious about how you comfort someone who is hospitalized and is going to be missing you know the big Passover meal, or won't be present with their community to break the fast during Ramadan. How do you help someone who's separated from their faith community because of their illness?
2: What we do, we try to provide patients and staff and family members who are here in hospitalized. Because I'm in a chronic care hospital here at Memorial, and then I'm also working with an acute care facility. So we make sure we set up where they can have. Uh, break fast in the evening time in the chapel. We make sure that the patients who are Muslims can get uh, dates on their plate or tray in the afternoon to break fast after we eat their meal. But we know that in Islam, uh, the month of Ramadan is a 30-day process from sun up to sundown for 30 days. And But it, there are exemptions. And sometimes some of our patients doesn't want to be exempt. but by the Islamic law, they have to be exempt from eating or drinking if they are sick. And that's one of the rules. And the young have to be able to eat, and the very elderly have to eat, and the, those who are nursing their babies, uh, and the person who is on her menses during that period of time, and a person who is mentally unstable. So and the person on a long journey away from home. So we try to make sure that the staff and the patients and the families understand this does not exempt you from doing the other things during Ramadan or reading the Quran and praying together, but you have to eat. And if you're able to make up those days at the end of the year, uh, if you get better, then you're required to do so. If not, then you feed the poor um, in the community, at least a meal. So we try to provide those things where people feel connected. And even here at Memorial, we have a television that we do the religious services every Friday. And we make sure it could zoom into all the patients' room who would like to watch it on television and be mm. a part of their religious services at that particular time. So so many ways to help people feel more comfortable that their faith tradition is being respected, even away from home. And we have an Eid celebration here for the children in pediatrics, where they will feel comfortable enough when they go to the Christmas celebration and they go to the Hanukkah celebration. We want to make sure they can say, we all celebrate the same way.
0: I'll echo that. I think even just a simple acknowledgement, you'd be surprised how powerful it is when you're in a hospital room for someone to walk in and just say, Chag Pesach Sameach, or, you know, Happy Easter, Um, just the the acknowledgement that 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 is happening, not just for you and your head in a place where it feels like no one else is um, thinking about it, but actually uh, someone just bringing you into the world of the celebration via acknowledgement. Um, and also, how powerful these symbols are. Uh, how powerful it is to have a little seder plate um, in in the case of Passover, um, or to have um, have even just a personal ritual that that someone has helped you rework. There is a wonderful organization called the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center in in San Francisco that would have kids and synagogues uh, write notes uh, saying happy, you know, whatever the holiday was for, for folks who are in the hospital um, that we loved to give to patients. And I think in some ways COVID has obviously exacerbated this problem of holidays while, while folks are in the hospital feeling lonely and right. isolated, but also in some ways it's made a uh, virtual celebration of holidays way more accessible. So um, kind of, in some ways at the beginning of the pandemic led by the dis- disability rights community, um, who said, yeah, we've been organizing holidays it- Jewish holidays online for decades, actually. Um, so now you, you really can get to a virtual seder, um, easily and folks in the hospital I know are doing that.
3: Yeah. I think naming it, like you said, Chloe is so important and it's such an opening for people to share how much it means to them that they might be missing this ritual or this holy day. And then for them to express what they need from you in that moment. Um, Just being available to to how they want to adapt it or if they just want to sit with the loss of um, not being able to participate in the most traditional way. I think it is a wonderful moment in that We can recognize that a lot of these traditions and these uh, opportunities for for sacred meaning-making have been very resilient in the face of this pandemic, that people have been very innovative and creative, and there's some malleability uh, to still lay hold of the meaning, though the circumstances are different than how they've looked like in the past.
1: Danielle, you're part of an interdisciplinary palliative care team. Can you walk us through what a day is like for you when you get to work? How do you find out about who you'd be seeing?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, being part of a specialty interdisciplinary team um, has a little bit of a different rhythm. And When I first arrive at work, I like to um, get settled in and, you know, fully arrive and be present to my work. And I look into EPIC, into our electronic um, charting system, and I see any new notes that have um, been placed for patients that I've already seen. And then I meet with the rest of my teammates. So we daily review all of our patients that are on our census. And depending on the patient's needs, their family system, uh, where we are at in the consult process and how they are doing in the trajectory of their illness, we determine who best um, on the team should follow up with them that day. Uh, usually, we go in pairs or even more. But we all weigh in and we all talk about each case one by one on a daily basis. So that rounding time is really important for updates and for kind of setting the pace and the schedule for the rest of the day. So while um, while maybe I'm closely following uh, perhaps only five patients that day, or even fewer some days or more. Uh, Each patient represents so many different conversations because we will be talking with the doctors, with the nurse, the bedside nurse, the family members, and then everyone on our interdisciplinary team. Um, So throughout the day, we might touch that patient once or twice but then we're touching everyone in their network as well.
1: You mentioned that you um, begin by checking in on the electronic health record. Do you, mm-hmm. do you chart spiritual issues or psychosocial issues in that chart as well?
3: Yeah, our charting is really thorough. Um, part of whole person care is also... Um, charting our assessment and our interventions and our noticed outcomes from those times together. And so uh, just like any other part of our team and even in the larger hospital setting, the um, floor chaplains chart as well. And so on the palliative care team, we all take part in writing a note. So we will share it between ourselves and Um, weigh in on our different parts and discuss how the note should go even as we're doing it um, so that it is a really complete and accurate picture of the whole person.
1: I'm conscious listening to the three of you talk about your work that so little of it is talking about God, right? (laughs) Pardon the crass language, but A lot of people, if you'd asked them, what does a chaplain do? That probably would be the answer. They're the person who walks into the hospital room and wants to talk to you about God. And it's so clear to me that that is not what you're doing. But you're accompanying people at times of anxiety and times of anger. There's so many profound human emotions that you deal with day in and day out, how do you keep your own spiritual battery at 80%?
3: Yeah, I think that some of it goes back to your question about how we are trained. And our training is pretty rigorous in that we're asked to be very self-aware and to self-supervise the needs that we are bringing into the room. We are expected to um, supervise our own ego and um, believe the patient, to have patient-centered interactions. And sometimes I do some meditation um, exercises on my way home in the transitional space called the commute. <laughs> I, um, sometimes I imagine the patients that I've interacted with or if I've had a particularly difficult consultation, uh, I play through that again. And then I imagine them um, in the car with me. And, and then I gradually am able to drop them off on the way home in a figurative way. Um, not thinking too much of myself Uh, helps, it helps that, uh, that differentiation.
2: Hmm. I love what I do. And I think that sustains me. And when I visit patients, I visit each one of them genuinely to see that particular person. And I come out of that room, I leave it right there where I've left it. The same as I finish my day's work, I go home and live my life. Um, visit my friends, do things that average person would do. And when I come to work the next day, I pick up where I left off. So I've learned to care for myself. Self-care is very important in this business. And I've been doing that for 30 some years and dealing with sick and dying children and adults. So you have to know how to see what strength that within myself and for me to care for me, when that time comes. So I've learned um, to go and be around, and I do. And I live my life intentionally. Let me say that.
0: Yeah, I love hearing both of you talk about this. Um, I feel like, in much the same way that often people who are in touch with the impermanence of life, either because they're sick or. Um, there's lost somebody can be not only touching the darkness of grief, but also touching what it means to live fully. Um, And as a chaplain, you're not just talking about death, but you're talking about life and what it means to live a meaningful life. Some of that is extremely joyful. And I know in my own grief journey, mourning my dad, but also in my journey as a chaplain, that sometimes sitting with people in their suffering kind of motivates me somewhat paradoxically to live fully. I want to taste everything. I want to taste life and the best life has to offer um, in a way that sometimes if I'm not feeling intimately connected to that impermanence, I'm, I'm um, able to go to sleep and take for granted a lot of what this life has to offer.
1: Chloe, I'm, I'm reminded of um, an old Peanuts cartoon that showed... Um, Snoopy and Charlie Brown from a dock looking out over the water. Charlie Brown says, "Someday we're all going to die," and Snoopy says, "Yes, and we're going to live every day until then."
2: <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why the work that we do. Sometime also, Sean is and is is that we help people have a, a good passing off. And I remind patients and family members especially to look at the good you've done in life. You know, a lot of time we forget about saying the things that will help comfort a person when they come to the end of life. Remind mother of how, what a great mother she was, if she was mm-hmm. a good mother. Remind of the good cooking she've done. You know, we have to mm-hmm. remind each other. And so that, and then let them know that we'll be all right you know you can go if you like to go but we'll be fine with what you've done to us and that comforts the patient who's dying and also helps the family to say the things that they need to say to help this transition go forward
0: right and i'll just add that especially in a in a medical framework where you know often death is the bad outcome that's what everyone's kind of preventing uh, preventing um the chaplain has a unique role in actually uh, holding the truth that sometimes death is not a medical failure. Um, it's actually not pathological. It's, complete, it's normal and natural. And having someone in the room who's not afraid of that um, or guilty about that or... Uh, in some way, trying to avoid that fact can be really stabilizing and powerful.
1: Chloe and Danielle and Youssef, this has been a great conversation and I am so grateful for the three of you taking the time to talk with me and with one another. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.
1: Imam Youssef Hassan is a chaplain at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And New York Presbyterian Hospital, Weill Cornell Medical Center. Chloe Zelka is the co founder of the COVID Grief Network, which supports young adults who've lost someone to COVID 19. There's a link on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. Chloe is a rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. And Danielle Cummings is a palliative care chaplain. At the Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. Special thanks this week to Sarah Sarison, Crystal Ashton, and Denise Hess. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter where we're human underscore caring. It's the best way to stay in the loop on upcoming programs and to find out more about our guests. Our podcast is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal, the executive producer, is Mike Drummond. Stories in the Hear Me Now oral history project are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Gaddis. We have research help from Heather Martin, Seema Bhakta, Sarah Vescuso, Catherine Gibbs, and Amanda Schwartz. I'm Sean Collins reminding you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word. We're grateful. Thanks for listening. Be well.